0: Why don't we go ahead and say a word of prayer? Father, we are so privileged to come into your presence. We thank you for your presence today as we've sang and enjoyed and laughed with one another, prayers that you hear from us, the love that we share. We want to hear your voice. We long to hear your spirit speak into our hearts and lives. Sometimes we come to you with situations, problems, and things that we we really want you to speak to us about. And sometimes you're gracious and you answer us, but sometimes you're gracious and you get us off of our distractions and you draw us into what you desire to say to us. We're grateful that you're gracious. We're grateful that you can speak to us today, that you are a present teacher. We pray that you would now exalt your son, Jesus, that you would build us up in love and faith, help us to love and serve you and love and serve others as well. Would you please remove me and would you please say what it is that you desire to say? In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. What is church? What is the church for? With the start of this pandemic in early in 2020, I can think of two big things, one good and one bad that has affected really the church. The first good thing is that the church in large part has found creative ways to continue its mission. Uh, I started doing these online sermons. It's why I feel like I take about 50 minutes getting ready before I can sit up and preach. And there have been people who I've never heard of reach out to me and thank me because the sermons are public. People share them and then Next thing I know, somebody from Florida or even across the ocean checks in every day, every Sunday, to hear some sermons. People, some people who may have not heard the gospel or people who haven't been faithful to attend church as much as they've wanted to in the past, or at least now hearing sermons from not only me, which is a good thing, but other people. That's a good thing. The bad thing is this, some people get content with staying home. So that in areas when restrictions are are lifted, perhaps their home church continues like we are to put our services online for viewing and listening. And then some folks adapted to a new routine and they're not making it out. Folks who may not venture out for reasons due to COVID, but folks who can and maybe they at least go get groceries or go do other activities. But they've adapted to just listening to the sermon online and otherwise go about their lives outside of the church and forsake Fellowship. What is the church? Did God intend for church to adapt and change throughout the ages to where now he's okay if we're just on mission by ourselves and, and listen to teaching or read teaching on our own time? Why do we meet together? Why is it important to meet together? We've been going through a series uh, looking through our doctrine and our faith and practice. And again, I just want to remind you that uh they entitle it in our faith and practice, Essential Christian Truths. In other words, we're not saying that, hey, we're the best church or we have the best doctrine on planet Earth, but these are just bedrock things in our scriptures that we see as our doctrine. And so I want you to hear with me our, our seventh doctrine today. It's in your outlines or it's up here. We're talking about the church and it says, we believe the church is composed of persons who through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ have been born into his kingdom and baptized with the Holy Spirit into one body, into the one body. These persons agree together to follow Jesus as Lord. This church is spiritual in nature, universal in scope, holy in character and redemptive in purpose. Its head is Jesus Christ, who serves immediately as priest, and ministers directly as teacher and prophet. The church exists visibly in local meetings for worship and in groupings of these churches as they are united in common expressions of faith and practice. In describing the doctrine of the church, I I see three segments primarily in this. First, we hear the definition of the church. Secondly, we are, see the spiritual realities. And then thirdly, we end on physical realities. So the definition of the church, spiritual realities of the church, and then physical realities of the church. We see the definition in our statement, and th- these phrases right here, it says, we believe the church is composed of persons who through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ have been born into his kingdom and baptized with the Holy Spirit into the one body. These persons agree together to follow Jesus as Lord. The church doesn't describe a building, but a people. Early Quakers called facilities, like the kind we're in right now, meeting houses. (laughs) Some uh, Quaker facilities, in fact, many of them today, sadly, not evangelical. But nevertheless, they hold on to this terminology. And I don't know, maybe you'll see uh, other places that are evangelical, but Woodland Meeting House or Woodland Friends Meeting. Why? Because the church meets together in the meeting house. (laughs) Just like the church is welcome to meet on Hogsback, or in town, or at a park, or in somebody's backyard, or in somebody's house, because the church doesn't describe a building, it describes a people. In the New Testament, in most translations, including the King Jimmy, as Dean would call it, uh, the first time the word church shows up is in Matthew 16:18. And In fact, we're going to be in Matthew 16 for a little bit, so even if you want to Humor yourself or me and turn to Matthew 16. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 20. Because we want to hear Matthew 16:18 in context. But Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13, says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Why do people say, where? who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? I want you to see the whole point of Jesus' discussion here. The whole focal point is this, who am I to you? Who am I to you? That's what Jesus wants to know. Now, the disciples and the apostles are like you and I, and sometimes we're either afraid to commit or we're afraid to really explore our answers to tough questions. That's why I think Jesus presses the disciples. Secondly, he he had to gear them up first. Who do other people say that I am? But, But then he says, okay, I've heard what the population says about me, but now I want to know, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a confession, right? A profession of faith. The same one that any converting Christian does. I'm not saying those exact words, but in theory, in heart, that's what you should do. For Peter, to say that Jesus is the Christ is simply the Greek form of the term Messiah. Messiah. He's saying that Jesus is the long-anticipated Savior coming in the likes of King David. He's the one who's been prophesied about. But then Peter says that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And I've used this before, but if you're the son of a dog, you are dog. That's your species. (laughs) If you're the son of man, you are man. And if you're the son of God, you are God. So Peter says two things here. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the King like David. And then secondly, He's more than man. He's the Son of God. This is a confession. Now listen to how Jesus responds. Verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. First... Jesus says that Peter is blessed. He's blessed to know this truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and the Son of God. But then secondly, Jesus says that Peter knew this not by natural means, but by God-given means. Grace, supernatural enlightenment, the very Spirit of God has revealed this to Peter that much how Jesus opened the eyes of the blind so God had to open Peter's blind spiritual eyes to see this about Jesus and it seems this is the case with everyone Jesus says in John 6:44 that no one can come to Jesus come in the believing sense that is unless the father who sent Jesus draws people so it takes God to know God <laughs> that's what Jesus says Now, here's where it gets tricky, and here's where some interpretations differ. Verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There's the word church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. In order to interpret this, I want you to have in mind the apparent beginning and the ending of this entire episode. Now I say apparent because even though our Bibles like to section the beginning and the end, it's not like the evangelist Matthew whenever he was writing the Greek had a subheading and sectioned it off for us. But it seems to me that most Bible editors and translators are right that this episode begins with Jesus talking about his identity in verse 13. And he ends it with Jesus charging the disciples to not share at this moment who he is. Verse 20. So it's a section primarily about the identity of Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. Secondly, I would say that the differing interpretations hinge on verse 18. People disagree on verse 18. Thirdly, I would say that logic in Bible reading or reading actually any form of literature, to understand an immediate text, we should examine the context. (laughs) So how does the context inform the immediate text of verse 18? See, if the entire passage here is about the identity of Christ or even the confession of the identity of Christ, how does that inform verse 18? Peter's name comes from Petra or rock or stone. Some have suggested, and I'm only going to say suggested because I'm not going to deny there's controversy understanding verse 18, but some have suggested that Jesus is is almost using wordplay here concerning Peter's name. And I tell you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Is the church being built on Peter, or is the context of the immediately preceding verses what Jesus is going to build his church on, namely the confession of Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Son of God? Is Jesus saying in contemporary Kevin Lane version, You're right, Peter. I am the Messiah, the Son of God. God the Father has revealed that to you. And I tell you, Peter, that like your name, on this rock, on this confession that you've made, that's what I'm building the church on and the gates of hell is not are not going to prevail against it. Is Jesus saying that the rock of the church is Peter? Or is Jesus saying that the foundation of the church is Christ and confessing Christ as he is? Now what Catholics say is that it's Peter here because there's a lot of stock and the Pope being the successor of Peter and they like to trace the succession of their Popes back to Peter because of this statement and what it means to them. I'm comfortable with saying it's actually a little bit about both, but I would say it's about Peter to a lesser degree. Jesus could be saying a little bit of both. The confession of me... As the Messiah and the Son of God is the rock that I'm building my church, just like I'm building it on you. Something like that almost. But we see, at least in the Bible, that the character of Peter fades behind Paul in the book of Acts. That's why I see this passage is a bit more about the confession of Christ being the rock that Christ is referring to. Kind of like what Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, He says, the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the chief part of the foundation of the church, Christ Jesus. If Peter's confession of Christ is the rock in which the church is built, then the church is built by confessing believers. We see in the book of Acts that the disciples grow the church by means of an evangelical movement. They're not seeking to, to baptize people or include people in their movement for just inclusivity's sake, but rather what happens time after time. Usually we read a sermon then we, with calls to repent and then people believe in Jesus and with affirmation of their inclusion into the church by the Holy Spirit falling on them. They believe in Jesus, profess their belief, and then the Holy Spirit baptizes them. That's what the church is in the most simplest understanding. The definition of the church is we believe that the church is composed of persons who through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ have been born into his kingdom and baptized with the Holy Spirit into one body. These persons agree together to follow Jesus as Lord. Now, that's the definition, but then the church has spiritual realities and physical realities. For the spiritual realities, our statement continues this way. The church is spiritual in nature, universal in scope, holy in character, and redemptive in purpose. Its head is Jesus Christ, who serves immediately as priest and ministers directly as teacher and prophet. The church is spiritual in nature. Friends, if the church is built on the confession of Jesus as the Christ or the Son of God, if the church is defined by persons filled with the Holy Spirit, well, these are spiritual truths. You can never really, you can't see somebody confess. You can hear them, but you can't see somebody 100% of the time filled with the Holy Spirit. I remember having this discussion actually with a, person I grew up with in my home church who went to the Catholic Church as a practicing Catholic, talking about the nature of the church. And actually, where I went to try and understand my belief in the church was in John 15. If you've been reading our newsletter that our church puts out weekly, I, I started on this series that I did a few years back in John 15, actually. But the church is described in John 15, I believe, in a spiritual description. Jesus says... He is the vine and we are the branches. And if we abide in Him and we produce fruit because the vine produces it in us. See, Jesus isn't talking about physical realities here. He's using imagery to tell us a spiritual truth. There is an organic union taking place, a spiritual union that's really so close that people should see us and not know where Jesus begins and we end. The church is also universal in scope. The Quaker founder, again, George Fox, wrote in his autobiography that once he had this revelation, he says, "...a consideration arose in me how it was said that all Christians are believers, both Protestants and Papists. And the Lord opened to me that if all were believers, then they were all born of God and passed from death to life, and that none were true believers but such." And though others said they were believers, yet they were not. You see how Fox understood to be understood the church to be made up not of an earthly organization Catholic, Quakers, Baptists, this denomination, that denomination. But a spiritual reality that, that people across all denominational barriers, if they profess Christ, they are Christian. Paul seems to think that the criteria for being a Christian is likewise. It's very general. He says in Romans 10, 9 through 10, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's what Peter did, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You hear that it's a heart thing. It's a belief thing. That that leads us towards justification or being made right before God, and it leads us towards being saved. So therefore, this isn't a sect and a denomination thing. In fact, the two biggest groups in Paul's day fighting and vying for the label of God's chosen people, Jews and Christians, in the book of Romans, Paul goes on to say how this confession and belief is truly the universal church unifier. (laughs) He continues in Romans 10, verse 11. He says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. If who believes in Him? Everyone. If you've never been to church, but then you come to put your faith in Jesus, you're not going to be put to shame. If you come to church all your life, But on a given day, a light bulb finally goes off and you realize it's all true and you realize you've been living like it's not true but you believe in Him now. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is the Lord of all bestowing His riches on all who call on Him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Back in Paul's day, Jesus was a Jew, is a Jew and the Jewish tradition was largely exclusive. You had to be of the Jewish race to be of the children of God. But what Paul is leaning into in Romans is the truth of the Gospel that the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, was and is the Savior of all mankind. He saves whoever calls on Him. So you think it's two different religions almost, Catholic and Protestants? Well, how about... Jews soaked in the Old Testament traditions with Gentiles who worshiped idols and partook in Roman temple prostitution. And Paul is saying that when anyone from any of these categories, no matter their past, when anyone calls on God to be saved, they will be saved. They'll enter into the church, the community of believing persons. See, the church is universal in scope. The church is also supposed to be holy in character. This goes back to, to John 15, as I mentioned briefly ago in the subject of the Sermon on the Facing Bench. See, if Christ is in us, if the Holy Spirit is in us as a church, then the church should reflect Christ and be holy. Jesus says in John 15:5, He says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And then verse 8, he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to me my disciples. This goes back to what we were talking about last week, if you were here, that the church and the Christians who are baptized in the Holy Spirit is to be markedly different from the world. It should not be that Christians are merely everybody else, yet with a different schedule on Sunday and Bibles in their houses. The church should be a counterculture, a holy entity among the world. The church is also to be redemptive in purpose. In 2 Corinthians five eighteen through 20 Paul says that Christ reconciled us to himself. Now, hopefully you see, doctrines are all related to each other. (laughs) This goes back to, we looked at human redemption a few weeks ago. Reconcile means that there was an original intention. There was a, a first unity with God, then a break in that unity. And through Christ, we are reconciled back to God, restored to our original intent. But then Paul reveals that it doesn't stop there. Rather, our reconciliation with God leads us to another task. Namely, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's our task now. We, we get to be about that ministry. Paul further explains that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The church is redemptive in purpose. We're seeking to reconcile the world to God. We're seeking to see individuals redeemed. We're seeking to see relationships with God and with people redeemed. We're seeking to see tragedies and situations redeemed. And this all happens when we reconcile people back to God. Because remember what we talked about? People are made to worship. (laughs) They're made to be in communion with God. One other spiritual reality of the church is paramount for us to understand. And that is the church's head is Jesus Christ, who serves immediately as priest and ministers directly as teacher and prophet. I closed last week with a current event story about the Pope, that I read an article about the Pope that kind of made me go, "Mm." this past week I've read a few articles about some Protestant leaders and their endorsements for who should or shouldn't be the president. (laughs) There's a fine balance between who our leaders are as the church and who is the head. I love what Paul says in Ephesians. And by the way, if you want to open up a book in the Bible and say, what does the Bible say about the theology of the church? Read Ephesians. That's really, for the most part, Paul's theology on the church. But in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, Paul writes this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, some say pastors there and teachers, to equip them, saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So do you hear that? That there are people that God has given to the church. Now, this isn't an arrogant, I'm God's gift to the church. (laughs) But in a role sort of way, hey, God has selected redeemed sinners among his church to act in these roles. Now, they're still capable of sinning, capable of not being the best they should be. And should they not act with humility and service and not act out of the spirit's power? But they are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Or I like what the NIV says, to prepare God's people for works of service. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine, Some some versions just say every wind of teaching here. By human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Here's what Paul's saying. That God's gift of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are meant to instill in people a thirst for God so much that we take advantage of the Holy Spirit's presence within us. We're supposed to be growing under godly teacher, but much how parents raise their kids to hopefully allow their kids to one day function fairly well on their own, so Christians ought to be able to do that. Not to say you should forsake fellowship for it, but hopefully Christians come to a spot, like verse 14 describes here, that the discernment so that when celebrity church leaders write thoughtfully crafted articles... We will, for better or worse, be able to discern if they are giving godly wisdom or false teaching. Because Paul says there's a goal in mind, actually. In verse 15, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul says that Christ is the head of the church. He would pick up on this head terminology a head in Ephesians. Excuse the pun. I'm just trying to wake you up. <laughs> but as he talks about marriage, and he relates the husband as head of the household to Christ as the head of the church, we hear in Ephesians 5:23, "Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior." Paul continues on, verses 25-27, to 27, he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ is the head of the church, serving as its priest. He mediates between God and man. He is the priest, and he has saved the church by giving himself up for her, sacrificed. He is teacher and prophet. He utilizes the Holy Spirit to grow us up into godliness. You're going to memorize, hopefully, a verse by the end of this series, because I think I bring it up every week. It's very Quakerly. 1 John two twenty-seven. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and it is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The Holy Spirit, Jesus Spirit is in us teaching us. These are the spiritual realities of the church. But there are also nevertheless physical realities in the church. That's how our statement ends. The church is. Exist visibly in local meetings for worship and in groupings of these churches as they are united in common expressions of faith and action. I want to talk about two things, the necessity to meet, and then the reality of splits or denominations. Paul, throughout his letters, particularly 1 Corinthians, he seems to be laying out instructions for worship. We'll talk about this in our last doctrine, worship, But I just want to suggest that the simple fact that Paul lays out how to orderly do worship means he expects the church to be meeting. Does that make sense? Jesus says when he does the Last Supper, do this often in remembrance of me. Now, while he may be, and in fact is likely referring to the actual taking the elements, some see that also as Jesus saying, meet together (laughs) in remembrance of me often. And lo and behold, he didn't say that on a Sunday or a Saturday, but he actually said it on a Thursday. So we're both wrong. I guess we should start doing church on Thursday. No, just kidding. When the persecution gets tough, the author of the book of Hebrews says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Later in the book of Hebrews, The author imagines what the church is, spiritually speaking. And he says it's this in Hebrews 12. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Do you hear that? A communal gathering of the angels in heaven. So Phil and John Pitts are worshiping with us right now. And the firstborn enrolled in heaven, that's us on earth. That's what the church is. But most of all, we also come, says Paul, with the angels and the saints, and to, excuse me, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The visible sign of the church is the gathering of saints to communally worship God. Now, one last question. Why so many churches, denominations? Many of you know or remember our superintendent, Jim Lashana. I first met him actually at a man camp some time ago or a few years back. And his heart, as some of you, if you hear him preach once, you probably realize it's church planting. He wants to see more churches planted. And I've heard him use a phrase from time to time. He says something like, I just think that there's more part of the Great Commission pie for evangelical friends. In other words, he's saying that our expression of faith might be fruitful among certain demographics of unchurched people, unreached people. God has use for evangelical friends. Our statement here, like most of it, is just sophisticated talk saying that the church, universal or all Christians are ultimately a spiritual community of real persons, but visibly shown in local meetings for worship, that is church gatherings or church assemblies. Then the statement recognizes that Friends or Quaker is just one of many denominations. The statement says that people are united in common expression of faith and action. In other words, the church universally has smaller groups of people that unite around ways that they express their faith. Now, I wanted to say this at first, that this is a sad reality. But then I believe there is more than one way to look at this. First, we know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers." What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. And let me just update that for you and say, I follow George Fox. I follow John Calvin. I follow the Pope. I follow John Wesley. I'm Quaker first. I'm Baptist. I'm Nazarene first. Whatever. (laughs) It's Christ divided. Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul doesn't like divisions. (laughs) But there are two types of divisions, I think. There are divisions that do come about from pride, what we see here, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. It's about who I think the right teacher is and the fact that I follow them. But there are also divisions that I believe come about from necessity, from history, from geography, maybe just the people makeup. In the book of Acts, You're welcome to disagree with me because this is just kind of reading below the lines. But I just imagine that the church that James oversees in Jerusalem, largely made up of law-abiding Jews, probably has a different culture from the church under Barnabas and Saul and the others that are in the church in Antioch. Still, the churches that Paul has been planting in the greater area of Galatia, where we last left off in our series in Acts earlier this year, are churches that are springing up that might have different culture. (laughs) And depending on the teacher's teaching and the maturity of the believers, maybe even different subtle opinions about doctrines. Nevertheless, this was all the church. And every now and then, we might have Paul and Barnabas stories where there's a split up. But even then, the churches and the ministering that Barnabas and John Mark that was going to be doing, or the ministering that Paul and Silas would be doing, might make slightly different churches. Even so, never was Barnabas and Mark going to say, oh, don't listen to Paul. He's too unforgiving and bullheaded. And neither would Paul say, oh, if Barnabas and Mark come through here, don't let them in. And I I doubt Mark will show up anyways. He's kind of flaky. No. (laughs) Some divisions happen. Sometimes they are born out of sin, but nevertheless they are redeemed. And other times they are born out of necessity or geography or... Just the reality of this situation, different cultures are birthed, different emphases are birthed, different expressions of faith are birthed. I'll give you an example. You know that sometimes I might get a little animated up here preaching and I begin to sound like a Southern Baptist married to Pentecostal. And, and I've had a few of you come up to me and say, I appreciate that. Uh, it reminds me of my home church, of where I grew up. In those same sermons, I've had other people say to me, you're talking a little too loud. Can you calm down? Now, these are expressions of different styles of preaching. And one style isn't better than the other. However, one style might speak to some. Well, maybe it scares or slightly offends or discourages others. And then vice versa. If I'm up here preaching like I am have a conversation with you and I don't get too loud and I'm not Southern Baptist Pentecostal sounding, some of you are relaxed and you're listening because you feel like you're not getting hit in the face with a Bible, while others of you are, are about asleep. God needs all kinds of churches, church cultures, preachers, and their preaching styles to reach all kinds of people. Sometimes people, being the sinners they are, do not give the credit where it is due, and suddenly it's not about the God who reached them through a movement of faith, but maybe it's just going to be about that movement. Whether that movement's charismatic leaders or maybe the movement's pet doctrines or the movement's tradition, that's where it goes south. It doesn't mean that the movement should be tossed out entirely. It can be redeemed. Christ is the head of the church and he's the head of the whole church. So what is the church? It's a group of professing believers that is beyond these four walls. Believers in all sorts of churches, believers who are baptized in Christ, working for Christ, to bring the world to Christ. And the point is this. You're in the building. You're coming to church, you say. But are you baptized in Christ, working for Christ, and seeking to bring the world to Christ? I have to believe this, that just what I said about God needing all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people, God needs you in your own style to reach certain people. Are you baptized in Christ, full of the Spirit, so that you might work for Christ and add to His church by seeing your part of the world reconciled to Christ? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that You are a God who has reconciled the world to You through Jesus. We're grateful that you are a father to many sons and daughters. Dean jokingly grimaced at the word diversity. Uh, We are your people and there is a diversity among us. Sometimes that diversity does lead to sinful errors, but other times that diversity is what is needed to reach every single person for Jesus. Father, you've given us our own schedules. You've given us our own spheres of influence. You've planted us in a house, a place where we live, people we interact with daily. Father, you are a God with a plan in mind, and I just believe that even if it's just one person that we come into contact throughout the week that doesn't know you, we have to believe you've planted us in their lives for a reason. Father, would we view our daily walk as one of ministry and mission. Would you help us to be faithful to you? Would you help us to be filled with your spirit so that whenever we do minister to them, it is your spirit speaking to them? Father, prepare hearts around us to receive your word, to receive your invitation to come to the kingdom. Thank you that for whatever reason you would leave with us sinners the mission of saving the world. Help us, Lord Jesus, to continue to die to sin daily, to trust in you, and to act full of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the gift of the church. Help us to not forsake it. Father, we love you and we thank you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.